His deepest passion is starting highly innovative companies, especially in the biotechnology and pharmaceutical sectors. Ultimately, he aims to make a difference in healthcare and in the world. An example of his many entrepreneurial successes is Athena Diagnostics, that sold for 740 million US dollars. He served on several boards, both of his own companies and as an independent board member serving with some of the leading figures, including the founders and senior executives of Teva Pharmaceuticals, Genentech, Merck, DuPont, Novartis, JP Morgan, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He has also done a lot of business in Taiwan, Japan, and China. One advice he has for aspiring entrepreneurs? Give up the trodden path, and if you survive, you are unlikely to ever go back. Please welcome Nigel Fleming, joining us from Barcelona. Nigel, thank you very much for your contribution and thank you for joining uh, Inspire Me. You're most welcome. Your time is very valuable as you are a very busy person and you are very busy with your many projects. You are a serial entrepreneur, a scientist, and a mentor to many people. These are all qualities and roles that many of us seek. I'd like to start talking about success and what success means for you. And as you know, uh, the vast majority of successful people are highly productive, good time managers, and well-organized. Most likely, they are able to get done a lot more than the average person. One can certainly say that uh, this is your case and that throughout your life, you have been able to achieve quite a bit professionally. Could you please take a bit of time to discuss what success, happiness, and fulfillment mean for you? Are they in any way distinct from one another? Very good questions. Um, you know, if you're Donald Trump, which would be a very unfortunate thing, you'd probably never achieve success because it's always round the corner. You always want something bigger. You always want to double what you have. And you're never happy. So I'm actually somebody who calls that the Trump disease. And I think that you have to set in your mind quite early as a young person, what it is that would make you happy. And if you're in business, one of those things is money. And when it comes to money, you need to decide a number. You need to decide what number it is you would like to achieve. Unfortunately, our friend Mr. Trump has not decided that number, and he continues to try to accumulate and accumulate. I advise people to take a pencil on the back of an envelope and write out a number that works for them, for their life going forward, and then do the math and decide if you put that in an interest-bearing account in a conservative uh, vehicle, um, what sort of lifestyle that would give you after taxes going forward. Thus, you can derive a number going forward that would define for you business success. The issue of happiness is a very different one. I think that hmm, for many business people today, as opposed to in previous eras, I think the definition of banking in the uh, Victorian era was to the creation of inextinguishable debt. And that was what the bankers were after, which I think is a pretty pretty low life um, goal. That 
would not make me happy. What makes me happy in my life is going after goals that are um, able to generate cash, money, wealth, to meet that number goal on the back of the envelope, but also that contributes to society, that you feel you're doing something good. I would not be in the very slightest bit happy to be a head of a cigarette company. I would not be in the slightest bit happy to be head of a fracking company, etc. You get my drift, I think. So social good in our world, I think, tends to be a part of people's values that is important. So a number, something related to social good. <clears throat> and I've certainly met entrepreneurs who get a lot of happiness distributing their wealth. And I have enormous respect for uh, the Gateses and the Zuckermans and other wealthy people who said, I'm going to make the world a better place by distributing the excess money I made. So those are some considerations that I talk about when I talk with young people about goals, happiness, success. The number that you mention is most likely subjective and it is linked to one's aspirations and goals. Do you refer to how much profit should one aim to have for his or her own company? Or are you referring to individual wealth? If so, how should one react to reaching the number that represents the, the aspired individual wealth? It's not the profit of the company. It is your share that you walk away with as an entrepreneur in your bank. At the end of the day, uh, typically a scenario from a $100 million company, you'd walk away with $10 million pre-tax, which would leave you $5 million post-tax. Give you an example. <clears throat> Any situation you get into, if you are going to go to work for a young company, you're going to have to want to ask for enough equity to make that number happen. Or, assuming you will live a very, very, very long life, you do that twice in two companies, or three in three companies, or when you start your own company, that you have enough equity to make that work with the business model you have. And maybe if the business model doesn't generate that, you say, well, is this perhaps the right business for me to achieve that goal? I know a lot of people who undershot their goals, conscious or unconscious, and with hindsight, um, were continuing to have to work at a later age when they probably didn't want to. And had they set a number earlier on, they could have avoided that situation. So it allows you Uh, to have a sniff test when you have an opportunity to say thumbs up or thumbs down. Entrepreneurship seems to be the means to achieve not only financial independence, but also the personal growth that some people want or need. However, you have mentioned in other venues that startups are not suited for, for everyone. They're not suited for the majority of people, as a matter of fact. And They seem to act as intense pressure cookers that weed out, you mentioned, 95% of the people. And they tend to bring out the best and the worst in people. Resilience and risk-taking seem to be the key words here. What are your thoughts? Very few people are risk-takers when it really comes down to it. And risk-taking is a key ingredient of being entrepreneurial. 
Secondly, very few people can truly think out of the box. And very few people, thirdly, um, can tolerate an untidy world, which is what entrepreneuring is about. When you start a new business, you're doing something that hasn't been done before. Most people tell you you're crazy, it can't be done, hasn't been done before. And because of those things, not all the facts are in because you're trying to do it for the first time. Um, it's an untidy world. And if you're an obsessive, compulsive type of person, having an untidy world without all the answers and all the dots dotted and T's crossed is insufferable. If you're somebody who doesn't like risk um, taking that first friends and family money, including your own, which includes your time, is also insufferable. So there are many personality types that don't fit into the entrepreneurial mode. And, you know, frankly, it's fortunate because young companies need people who are organized, um, systematic, not very risk-taking to come and work for them to implement the vision of the crazy person. But if you are one of the people who like uh, or can tolerate, I should say, <clears throat> the entrepreneurial life, it is quite true that you would never go back and work for another person again. Let's expand our, dis our discussion from entrepreneurship to leadership. Do you think resilience is a central characteristic of good leaders? And in what ways do you cultivate or have you cultivated resilience throughout the years? Well, I think there's a difference between resilience and stubbornness. I will give you an example of a young entrepreneur I know very well <clears throat> who had invented a molecule that did some good things. And his mantra was, I will never let this molecule die. Well, that's stubbornness because in the world of pharma, every molecule has go, no go decisions and you have to be able to kill molecules. That was a case of stubbornness. Resilience is where that entrepreneur to have had flexibility and say, hmm, if I tweak it here, I tweak it there, or if I adopt a new business model, or if I kill the molecule and move on to a new one, um, perhaps he would have had a more successful outcome. So actually, I think that flexibility, the flexible model of entrepreneurship, um, the lean model is the way to go. I think the issue that you touched on by the side of that, of leadership, is a very different subject. And not all entrepreneurs are good leaders. And I, and I wouldn't get caught up in confusing the two. I don't think they're necessarily the same thing. I don't think that all entrepreneurs should try to be good leaders. It, it's secondary to coming up with a good idea and a good concept that um, has potential in the market. You mentioned at the beginning of the interview that one of the responsibilities that we as leaders, entrepreneurs, or simply as human beings have is to make the world a better place and to leave it better than we found it. In your TEDx talk, you talk about how important this is and about the fact that we live in very interesting times. If that were not true, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. We live in very interesting times. 
Some of us find purpose in improving the world, whether through entrepreneurship, politics, or art. For example, I recently interviewed Amy Ansari. She's the executive director of Translators Without Borders, and she had beautiful insight on how she finds purpose in her life and in her work. When did your purpose become apparent to you, and when did it become obvious? And what kind of actions did you take to live a purposeful life? Very good question. Your questions, by the way, are superb. Um, <clears throat> it's an organic growth that you go through, and it sort of happens, to be perfectly honest. When I was young, I wanted to go into medicine, and I tailed around one summer with a, a dog. I examined his life, and I felt that this was not a life I wanted. I'll tell you a story about how I um, switched over from an academic to um, an entrepreneur in a moment, but... It was an organic process of following your heart, following your passion, and that will tend to lead you to the right place. But I'll just tell you the story briefly about the transition. I was an academic at Harvard Med School, and I used to have coffee on Friday mornings with George Hauser, who was an emeritus professor at the medical school that had invented brain, brain limits. And one Friday morning, I went into his lab, as usual, and he was looking a little glum. I said, George, you're looking downright miserable. What, what's, what's the problem with you today? And he said, Nigel, I have submitted my fourth version of this grant, and I've been rejected four, four times. And I listened, and I thought, mm, this is not good. I said, George, you have just done me the biggest favor in my life. I'm going to resign immediately my position and go out. And if you can't get grants, you who have all of these book chapters and the hundreds of publications and the uh, academic career behind you, I said, you know, this is not for me. I'm a much more lowly creature. And it was literally upon that moment of conversation that I tendered my resignation, left and started my first company. You've taken your destiny into your own hands, and that has had a huge impact on your life. I'd like to ask a closing question about your future. How would you like to be remembered by your family, friends, and by society? Very good question. You know, I very often, when I interview people a lot um, for various purposes, but one of the questions I like to ask them is yours I like to say, what would you like to write as your epitaph to go on your own gravestone? And, you know, it's almost a rhetorical question because I've given a fair amount of thought to, to this question. I think it is, is one that one should bear in mind throughout one's life. And uh, there is a quote that I used from Darwin quite often in my blogs uh, that basically says, the more I study nature, and basically, I'm, I'm not going to quote it directly because it's beautifully written, but the more I study nature, the more I realize that even the most imaginative man with an infinite amount of time available to him could never come up with the remarkable contrivances of nature that have been derived through evolution. It's a long sentence, but 
for me, it says, Paul, what drives me, the thing that I like to write on my epitaph, and that is that through the study of nature and a passion for trying to understand it, therein is my happiness. Something has to be intellectually satisfying to its core, not just the numbers on the spreadsheet or not just the ROI that you get for your investors. It has to be deeply, deeply intellectually satisfying for me personally to have a lifelong interest in, in pursuing that. And for me, life science entrepreneuring has that. It touches all of those aspects. Nigel, it was an absolute pleasure to host you. Thank you. You're most welcome. This was Inspire Me, and I am your host, Real Fortuna.